you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Uh, I'm 60 and I haven't planned for retirement. What do I do? Sounds scary, but unfortunately, this is the number two type of email that we get from our audience of mostly LGBT people who have not prepared for retirement by their 40s, 50s, and even 60s. And they're asking, what can they do? So as a follow-up to our series on retirement planning and investing, today we're talking to Teresa Mears from livingonthecheap.com, which is all around the country, and we're talking about late-stage retirement planning. Teresa has some great advice for people who have not started preparing for retirement when they've hit their 50s and 60s, and in some cases, their 70s. Check out this podcast. You don't want to miss it. Also, be sure to grab the late-stage retirement planning checklist that we provided in our show notes so that you can make sure you take off all of the opportunities that are available to you that we talk about on this podcast and more. Here we go. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money, and we are excited and privileged to have one of our FinCon friends, Teresa Mears, who manages the website Living on the Cheap. She's, I just found out that she's based out of not far from Fort Lauderdale, so we're a little bit jealous right now. <laughs> so welcome, Teresa. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We're excited. Would you mind providing our audience a little bit about your background, please? I started as a newspaper journalist. I was a newspaper journalist. I worked for the St. Petersburg Times the Los Angeles Times, and mostly the Miami Herald, plus some smaller newspapers for about 30 years. And then when the newspaper industry imploded, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and I ended up in online publishing. So now I publish the website Living on the Cheap, which provides personal finance and lifestyle advice. And then we have local on the cheap websites in about 20 cities, such as Mile High on the Cheap in Denver and Miami on the Cheap and Fort Lauderdale on the Cheap here in Florida that give people specific information about how to have a good time without spending so much money. We love it. That's in line with our philosophy of the not-so-expensive alternatives. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You still have a good quality of life if you strategically shop and look for things that are not so expensive. (laughs) That is definitely true. Well, and we're excited to have you on today because we do receive a lot of emails from our audience those who are 40 to 50 to 60 years old who are kind of at panic at the disco about their retirement and what they can do to prepare for retirement at such a late stage. And that's one of your expertise, right? Well, yes. I've written quite a bit about retirement and retirement planning. I guess the good news is if you're 40, you got a lot more time, but you better start using it. If you're 60, you have fewer options, but it's never too late to save for retirement. Oh, I love that. So, and we'll definitely touch on that a little bit. From your perspective, why do you think so many people, not just LGBT people, but so many people struggle to plan for such an important part of their lives? I think that when you're young, it seems so far away. You don't realize (laughs) that you blink and suddenly you're going to be, as I am, 61 next month. (laughs) Um, Congratulations. Just yesterday, I was 25. I'm sure that's true. It comes upon you faster than you think it will. And you think that you're always going to have more time and that you can worry about it later. And later sneaks up on you while you're living your life. Absolutely. I heard it before when I was younger and I didn't believe it, but that time just goes by so fast. And 
now that you know, David and I are in our mid-40s and we agree with you. We're like, geez, just a couple of years ago, we could actually stay out until two or three in the morning. <laughs> and, and now, hey, speak for yourself. I can still stay out until two or three in the morning. And now we're going to bed at 8, 30, 9 o'clock. <laughs> we get up a lot earlier these days. We get up at four. Well, that is, that is focusing on work and getting up in time to get it done is, is, is an important part of retirement planning. You do need to work if you're going to retirement. Absolutely. <laughs> what are the, the risks of not planning? What does it actually look like from your experience or from what you know for someone who hasn't planned for retirement? We hear the scary stories, but what does it actually look like? It is very hard to live on Social Security if that's your only source of income. Even if you were a high earner and you're getting the maximum of Social Security, it's very hard to live on Social Security. In South Florida, where I live, the cost of housing has risen astronomically. So that when I first bought a house in 1985, I paid $60,000 for a house and I paid 160 a year in real estate taxes and 160 a year in homeowner's insurance. That house now is a $350,000 house and your homeowner's insurance is three or 4,000 a year and your real estate taxes are two or 3,000 a year. So that even if you're in South Florida and your home is paid off, you could find yourself paying 500 to $1,000 a month in homeowner insurance and real estate taxes. Right. Yeah. You know, that's. I, I, and if your Social Security is 2000 that's a big chunk. Right. It is interesting to take that into consideration. The kind of everyday expenses you don't necessarily think about, but the ones that will have a major impact on your finances when you retire, when you're not bringing any money in. Oh, yeah. Think about the cost of a new roof. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, and even if you've paid off your home, you still have the property taxes in most states, and many people live in homeowners associations, so those costs are always going to go up. My parents know of actually two couples who they're friends with who have to sell their home because the property taxes are cost prohibitive. They can't continue to live on their retirement and Social Security and still pay property taxes. And that's just something that that's I don't think we talk true. about. That's definitely true. I actually had to sell my our home after my partner died, partly because of the property taxes were going to rise so much. Wow. Oh, that's sad. That's sorry to hear that. What you're kind of pointing out here is that if we're not prepared, if we don't have a game plan and we aren't thinking ahead of these things, then the reality is, is that the government, which I think a lot of individuals in our community look to for that end of life or late stage life assistance, it may not be sufficient to give you the quality of life that you've become accustomed to. Yes, that's definitely true. If you think about it, if you were earning, if you were earning a decent living and suddenly you're earning the maximum social security, which is about 2,600 a year, you're not going to have much of a quality of life on $2,600 a month in most cities. Right. Yeah, exactly. So what are the options available to somebody who hasn't started to plan for retirement? It sounds like you said earlier, you know, 40, you're still kind of lucky. You can probably stick with the standard traditional advice of preparing, but maybe we should talk a little bit about those who are in their 50s and 60s who haven't prepared. We do get a lot of emails from people who are in their 50s and 60s, unfortunately, who are panicking because they haven't prepared. And in many cases, they are still trying to pay off some debt. So what options would you recommend them looking into? There are no magic options. And that's the first thing you need to realize. If you haven't prepared, you're going to sacrifice something. Now, you're going to decide kind of what you're going to sacrifice. But let's start out, if you still have a job, a corporate job with a 401k, and particularly with a match to your 401k, that's the first place to start. You should be contributing the max 
at least the max to get whatever matching funds because that's free money. But if you're older, you should be contributing the max. You know, that adds up. That adds up in money invested. You invest, reinvest your dividends. You may not end up with a million dollars, but you may end up with 200000 by the time you're ready to retire. So that's a start. The other thing you need to figure out is if you have not saved for retirement, that means you're going to work longer. You're not going to retire early and travel the world if you don't have any money. <laughs> what? <laughs> I've been promised otherwise. I, I, I know that, that's a harsh reality, but, but that, that's the truth. Right. So I wonder when you mentioned contributing as much as you can to your 401k, at least to get the mass, because that is free money, would it then make sense to, if you have any additional money after you maximize your corporate match, to invest in a a Roth or traditional IRA and then do the catch-up contributions? Absolutely. If you have more money to invest in an IRA than the max that you can do to your 401k, The rules are going to depend on your age and a few other things, how you earn your income. But if you can contribute more, by all means, do that. If you have some sort of a side hustle, you may be able to do an SDT. If you have a type of health insurance that allows you to do a health savings account, that's a good way to save more money for retirement that you can use for health care in retirement. Any sort of tax-advantaged opportunities you have are the ones you want to go for first. Tisha, you bring up a very good point, and actually I found this out recently with the health savings accounts. And just a a little bit of information for those of you listening, health savings accounts are offered typically by your employer as a part of your health plan where you can set aside additional money in a tax-deferred or non-taxed account, and that money basically grows as a savings account for you for when you do retire, or you can use it during the year when you have major medical expenses. But the nice thing is, is that you can set that money aside and you allow it to grow as an investment, just like you would an IRA or a 401k. And then that money can, in retirement, be used for medical expenses. But at a certain point, you can start to use that money for all of your retirement expenses, not just medical expenses. And no, I didn't know that. I'll have to dig for a little bit more information. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. But you can use that towards your retirement as well as your medical expenses when you're in retirement. So you can use your 401k as catch up, but you can use your health savings account as a way to catch up for retirement as well. Great. We'll include that in the show notes as well as the late stage retirement checklist that we're going to provide to our audience as well. Yep. So, Teresa, you mentioned earlier that if you haven't planned for retirement, especially if you're only starting in your 50s and 60s, that you're going to need to work longer. So, when you say that, I get a little bit concerned because companies typically don't want to hire older people or they want to let the older person go because they already earned too much money and they can find some 20-year-old who would do the same job for cheaper, maybe not nearly as well. What are your thoughts on that? How can older people still maintain some level of employment with you know, abating those fears? problem. What happened to a lot of baby boomers in the recession is that the years we thought would be our highest earning years, you know, between 50 and 60 turned out to be our lowest earning years. Yeah. You want to stay current in your field to set yourself up as a consultant. If you're laid off, you may be able to work freelance. You may be able to become part of the gig economy, but the high paying gig economy, because a consultant earns a lot more than an Uber driver. (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) But it is important to, and you get tired of working once you reach a certain point and you get tired of, you know, your boss being a 22-year-old. 
And you do have to yes, yes, sorry, you do. I mean, when I was a 22-year-old boss, I'm sure I was brilliant. But I'm sure too. Today's 22-year-old, but that is an issue because you may want to work until you're 70, but you may not be able to keep your job until you're 70. And if you lose your job and you're not able to get another job in your in your field, you're faced with you know trying to get a job at Starbucks or the supermarket or you know, Amazon during Christmas season and other jobs that pay much less than you're used to and are often harder. Right. You know, I I love this point of staying current because as you mentioned, as we age and we've been in a particular position or a particular company or a particular career for a long time, our enthusiasm and desire for doing that work can sometimes drain us mentally and physically and emotionally. But if you stay current, if you're always going out there and finding out new tidbits of information or new skills in that same field, that can keep your level of enthusiasm and excitement for that career or that industry can keep that going and allow you to prove to your employer or prove to your colleagues that you are still highly valuable to your employer or to your colleagues. Yes, definitely. You made that point about getting into consulting. And David and I have a couple of older gay men who were in financial services who kind of acted as our mentors. Now that you mentioned that all of them have eventually branched off into a consulting business of their own, they were in positions that afforded that a little bit more easily. But to your point as well, the new gig economy is opening up all sorts of opportunities for people. And I believe, and I think David believes too, that everybody should have a blog of something or another and start positioning themselves as an expert in something that could be a niche within your current field, or it could be something completely unrelated that you're just passionate about, but become an an expert in something and you can maybe evolve that into a bigger business, similar to what, what you've done with Living on the Cheap. If you can develop your own business as you get older with the idea that you can continue running it in your retirement, that's a great thing. The caution I would add is running your own business is never easy. It's not an easy way to save for retirement. And running your own business in retirement or in late life working stage is the same as starting your own business at any time. It's risky Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it may or may not work and you may or may not earn money from it. The nice thing about the consulting route that you mentioned is that there are lots of companies out there that are looking for either permanent consulting roles or short-term consulting roles where they will hire somebody who has that expertise in a particular either niche within an industry or a broad experience in an industry. So there's companies that are constantly looking for those kinds of roles. Oh, yeah. Now, if you were someone who was respected in your field, you definitely can continue to consult in retirement. But it depends on what your field is. Exactly. But do you find in your experience with working with people, Teresa, that the individuals who have not necessarily prepared for retirement are more oftentimes the ones who may have had the lower earning jobs, lower income jobs, more of the service industry jobs? Yes, I think that's true because if you had a service industry job, you may never have even had access to a 401k. Or if you did, you didn't earn enough money that you could afford to put anything into it. Right. It's often the people who need their retirement savings and don't have it and need it the most who are the least equipped to be able to deal with it. Right. 
So it's these individuals that you're talking about that may need to look at working longer or look at having a side hustle, going out there, finding something in the gig economy, whether it's being an Uber driver or it's finding something a little bit more technical that they can do as just a supplement to their income. That supplemental income is what they would then be putting aside for retirement. Yes. Right. Now, if you, if you have the, the energy to do that, you know, that's a good thing to consider. Right. And if you do have the energy to do that and you're fortunate enough to be able to make money doing it, be strategic with that money and put it in you know retirement savings so that you can maximize the return on that and don't go to the bar that night because it was a rough day <laughs> and spend everything that you <laughs> earned. Sure if you have a rough day at the, in, your gig, in your gig economy job and spend all the money you earned, you it kind of uh, defeated the purpose of why you were working in it to begin with. Exactly. Right. If you can earn an additional $5,000 a year and put that money into some sort of retirement vehicle, whether it's a Roth retirement account or regular retirement account, if you can do that for 20 years and save at a rate of 7%, you're going to save yourself about $200,000, $220,000 for retirement. So as Teresa mentioned, you may end up working longer, but you're also going to be able to save up that money that's going to then pad your social security when you retire. Yes. And, you know, an extra $200,000 in an account at retirement can make all the difference between, you know, living well and, and struggling to get by. Exactly. And I'll do a plug. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have Nick Loper of Side Hustle Nation on our show to talk about side hustles for the LGBT community. So if you're at a loss for what direction to look for your side hustle, you don't want to miss that show. And I'll also add, for especially those who are older, if you're a same-sex couple and you have not gotten married yet, you definitely want to listen to our podcast with David Freitag from Mass Mutual. He is Mass Mutual's social security expert. And he talked about the benefits of both the spousal and survivor benefits of social security that you only get after nine to 12 months of marriage. Right. Um, that's so if you haven't gotten married, that's something to consider. That's episode 54. So check that one out. A couple of months ago, we had Todd Tresseter on of The Financial Mentor. And he sort of talked about how in his perception, the traditional strategy of saving for retirement, even for those who are in their 20s and 30s now, is no longer adequate. It's based on a saving model. And he's trying to get the whole world to start thinking in a cash flow kind of model, similar to what Robert Kiyosaki's definition of wealth is, is having enough investment income to support your lifestyle. And Todd talked about a three-pronged approach where, yes, you use your, your savings and investing in paper assets, as well as investing in real estate in one way, shape, or form. And also, he encouraged everybody to tap into their entrepreneur mindset in some way, shape, or form. Teresa, what are your thoughts on transitioning to that kind of retirement saving model? And do you think that's appropriate for somebody who's sort of at the critical stage in their 50s and 60s to start doing? You know, it depends so much on the person, the location, the opportunities. You know, real estate is a great investment when it works. Right. And it's a terrible, <laughs> you know, investment when it doesn't. Investing in real estate is not a passive thing. It's an active kind of a thing. You must manage it unless you actually can arrange it. So you have a manager and you still have to manage the manager. Mm -hmm. Particularly right now when it's hard to get a good property at a good price, just finding the right property to invest in is a challenge. So is real estate a good thing to consider to provide income in your retirement years? I would say yes, but it depends so much on whether you have the right mentality to do well in real estate and whether you can find the right properties. 
That's true. Fortunately for a number in our community, we did purchase real estate when we were younger or we purchased something as a couple. So if you own real estate, there is a way to take advantage of the real estate that you have using services like VRBO or Airbnb, Mr. 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 B&B. Oh, is it Mr. <laughs> Mr. 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 <laughs> I just showed my age. But right there, you can use the existing real estate you have as a way to make money through those kinds of services that can help add some money to your retirement accounts. Yes, that's definitely true. If you already have the real estate and it already cash flows for you, you're way ahead. And there are times that you can make more money running by the day on Airbnb or similar services than you can make running by the month. The cities are cracking down on that a bit. Right. And if that's part of your retirement planning, you also need to keep in mind that rules could change. Exactly. You definitely want to talk to an accountant, get some information as to what's going on locally with those kinds of services. Exactly. And I'll add, everything that we're talking about, somebody has already figured out how to do. So if you want to maximize real estate or getting into real estate, you know, a couple of months ago, we talked with Mindy Jensen from Bigger Pockets. Check out their podcast and their website. There are people that have whole businesses around VRB owing places around the country. So look at see what they're doing. They're blogging about it. They're talking about it. Learn from their mistakes and, and save yourself some of the hassle. Yeah, Bigger Pockets has an entire community where you can kind of interact with other people. Yeah. And exactly. find out about the realities of you know, including people in your own community and kind of find out some of the realities and see what kind of real estate investment might make sense for you where you are. Exactly. I think that one of the things that we're pointing out here, and Teresa, you you really kind of drive this point home, is that when you're at that point in your 50s and 60s and your time period is rather short, you need to start getting very creative with the ways that you can earn money or extend your earning period so that you don't end up one of those individuals who's just living off of Social Security and basically in a destitute state for the rest of your life because that's all you can live off of. Yes, that's true. One of the reasons we talk about working longer is not only that you'll continue to earn your income, but the longer you can put off taking Social Security up until age 70, the more you'll get. Exactly. That's, That's so point. true. Every year you wait is a 7% to 8% return between 62 and 70. Yeah. Right. That's, that's great. When you're at that critical <laughs> stage, that's a lot, well, that's a lot of money if you're not at that critical stage. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we've talked a lot about you know increasing your income or maintaining your income in some way, shape, or form. But if things are really critical, you are going to need to pinch your pennies as well. From your experience, especially since you have living on the cheap and you're talking about living good lives but not spending too much, what are the common areas that we tend to overspend on? Are you talking about after you're retired or before you're retired? Oh, that's a good question. How yeah. about before, I guess, since we're still planning for retirement? Right. If I had to look back on some of the things I've spent money on that I regret now, I would say <laughs> I spent way too much money on home renovation and decorating. It's interesting. You just offended no, just, all the gay I, men. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And that's why I brought that up. I mean, I did just renovate my kitchen where I live now, and I don't regret that at all. You know, it really improved the way it looked, my house looks, and, you know, the way I can use my kitchen. But when my partner and I were living, we bought a house and took it down to the four concrete block walls and did a complete whole house renovation and ended up in a lawsuit with the contractor and ended up spending way too much money. And looking back, I think we could have gotten what we wanted for a lot less money. 
In yeah, hindsight, in other words, some, some of those really cool decor things didn't really make our lives any better. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. So be a little more some strategic. Did, but some did not. <laughs> right. Well, then to follow and, up. And, you know, as you get older, one of the things that my friends and I all say is, why do we have all this stuff? We don't want all this stuff. I'm just, you know, the stuff weighs us down. So I would say spending on stuff, stuff that you don't use, stuff that just sits around, is something that you really want to look at. That's a good point that you make. David and I are in the middle of putting our condo on the market and we've been doing some, you know, touch-ups here and there and cleaning out things. And we thought we didn't buy a lot of stuff. <laughs> we're, we're kind of, I wouldn't say we're minimalist, but we're not extravagant with the stuff we buy. We rarely go to Target and Home Depot and all that kind of stuff. And we're amazed about all the stuff that we have. And here we thought we were a little yes. bit more judicious. <laughs> so it just kind of tracks to you. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and, Yes, I've been decluttering for the last 10 years and there's still too much stuff. <laughs> then, so to follow up your question, where do you see those who are retired overspending in areas that they don't necessarily need to? Well, I think there's some stuff there too. The other issue is people who have children and grandchildren kind of need to think about being smart on how they spend on their children and grandchildren. Right. That in some way, there are fewer, you know, people in the LGBT community may be less likely to have children, but many do. Right. And you have to make sure that you're not spending money on your children that you need yourself. Right. I'll add to that, even though many of us don't have as many children because we're LGBT, we are aunts and uncles and we oftentimes overspend <laughs> on our nieces and nephews. <laughs> yeah. When right. my, my first two nephews were born, I bought them all kinds of things. And then I realized these kids are two years old and they have tons and tons of toys. The last thing they need mm. is more toys. Right. So I started buying them books. And then as the number of nieces and nephews increase, it's like, I've got 15 nieces and nephews. I can't really <laughs> afford to buy them gifts. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you I, you just... know, I buy them wedding gifts. Now I buy them wedding gifts, but you know, I don't send them birthday gifts and Christmas gifts because I just can't afford that. Yeah. It's not like they need more stuff. No. Right. True. Even as a young adult. And you bring up a good point here, Teresa, that in our community, oftentimes we feel the need to treat our friends as our family. So we may be accustomed to buying our friends extravagant birthday gifts or taking them out to dinners when it's their birthday or for holidays and things like that. We may need to have the same attitude that we would have towards children, grandchildren, or extended bloodline family that we do with our friends. Is it better to provide our friends with a great birthday, or is it better for us to provide ourselves with an extra month of living expenses when we retire? Well, the truth is you can provide your friends with a great birthday without very much money. Right. That's true. I mean, you know, gay people know how to entertain at home. Entertaining at home is a great way to save money, mm -hmm. as long as you're kind of sexy about it. My friends and I don't exchange gifts anymore. This is a gift to them in that they don't have to shop. Mm -hmm, they don't right. have to wonder, what it is that she needs? Because she doesn't seem to need anything. I don't have any idea what to get her. And you wander through Target and you wander through Macy's and you wander through whatever you wander through, trying to find the just right gifts when the truth is, if you don't have to buy gifts for each other, you you know don't add to the stuff in the world and you save each other time. And instead of buying each other things, you spend time together. 
Exactly. One of the best decisions my family ever made, I think it was maybe five, eight years ago, but Dave and I were going through a transition in our lives. My sister and her husband were going through a transition in their lives. And we just said, Hey, can we just not have the adults exchange Christmas gifts this year? You know, Mm -hmm. let's give to the kids. And for us, there was only three kids, but let's give to the kids and the adults. Let's just skip it. We haven't actually resumed it, even though we talked about actually bringing it back someday. Yeah. But we all love the idea that we don't have to go out shopping for gifts. We don't have to look online. We don't have to penny pinch to try to get that perfect gift. It's a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I have four sisters and a brother, and they all have spouses and children, and now the children have children. And we started drawing names about 10 years ago. Oh, smart. And this year, we haven't even drawn names. And I don't even know if we're going to do that to buy just one gift. Yeah. And the best thing that we've ever done at any Christmas party, and every time that we've done it, it's been hilarious. But if you do a white elephant, you can't yes. you can't beat that kind of fun. Right. Right, right. <laughs> Your website is Living on the Cheap. You help people live good lives while being smart with their money. And we definitely want to drive people to your websites to read your articles and get your, your input there. But can you give us sort of a high-level overview of what your strategy is that people might want to implement to live well, but not feel like they're being a miser because they have to yeah. penny pinch? You think about what's important. In other words, if your nieces or nephews are important to you, you could spend $100 on something or you could go out to a park. I mean, for a child, niece, and nephew, going to a park with the aunt or the uncle, that's really fun and cheap. Even as adults, cool gay adults, young adults, <laughs> there's a whole lot of, you know, there's, I don't know about where you live, but where I live, there's tons of cheap free concerts by really good bands all the time. What's important is the experiences you have and the time that you spend with the people who matter to you. And those things don't cost money. So, yeah, maybe you want to go out to a fancy dinner every once in a while, but maybe you want to cook at home and have your friends over. Maybe you want to meet at some you know place that's really not cool, but the conversation is going to be good. So who cares if the food is so-so? Right. Yeah. These are all very valid points and actually strategies that that we've implemented that have helped us be able to live fabulously, but not fabulously broke. Yeah. I recently decided I was spending way too much money on cable TV for somebody who hardly ever watches it. I cut my cable down to almost nothing and haven't missed it. And now I use that money for something that matters to me. We just get used to spending on certain things. And I think one of the the best things that David and I ever did to help us pay off our $51,000 worth of credit card debt was to think about what is it we really wanted in life. We were living the gay cliche of going out and doing happy hours and going clubbing and fancy dinners. And ultimately, while those things were fun for us, they weren't really as rewarding as the expense would have suggested. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> I, I know exactly what you're saying. And when we were able to narrow down what was important to us and push everything else away or reduce our time and investment with those other things that weren't as important to us, that's when we were able to get our finances in line. Yes. It's not as if you have to suffer to be smart with your money. I mean, the thing about being smart with your money is you use it for what matters to you and don't use it for what doesn't matter. Exactly. Right. Yeah. We haven't suffered. And one of the analogies that we've said several times on this show is a question that David and I often ask ourselves is, do we want to go down the street and have a margarita here in Denver, or do we want to save a little bit and have a margarita on the beaches of Puerto Vallarta in a couple of months? <laughs> and in very <laughs> oh, ways, Okay. That's not a hard decision. <laughs> it's always Puerto Vallarta, right? right? So we can forego going out to happy hours you know, several months if that means we can go do something else that we'd much rather do and have a, a better experience doing it. Yes, that's absolutely true. And that's what we try to teach people at Living on the Cheap, to simply identify what matters and then to save money in ways that you can save it without even noticing it. 
You know, right. I didn't even notice when I cut my cable service down. Right. The thing I love about this part of the conversation is this whole idea of stuff or experiences that aren't necessarily buying into what's important to you in life. They are the ones that kind of distract you financially so that you don't end up doing the things or, or having the fun that you want because you can't afford it or having the life yes. experiences that you want because you can't afford it. And oftentimes we say to ourselves in a kind of a woe is me mindset that I can't do this and I can't do that. And what we forget is that we've done all of these other things that aren't necessarily important to us. And we didn't get upset when those were happening, but we get upset when we can't do the things that we really, really want to do. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it just takes a little bit of reflection and using a site like Living on the Cheap that allows you to say, I'm going to cut back my expenses on the things that aren't as important to me so that I can shift that money to the things that are important. Things like travel or retirement or giving to your nieces and nephews, whatever is important to you, making that shift from the unimportant to the important. Yes. I think that's a, a key part of living a fabulous life right. is using your money wisely and smartly. Exactly. So I want to ask you a controversial question. I'll admit going into it, I still have a bias against them, but I think they've evolved over the years. So maybe my bias is a little bit dated, but what are your thoughts on reverse mortgages for older people as a source of income? You know, it, that's another kind of, it depends on your situation. And I'm actually considering whether I would want to use a reverse mortgage to buy a better house than I could buy without one. And I can't tell you what the answer to that is because I don't know yet. I had a neighbor in Miami who took out a reverse mortgage to stay in her house and stayed in it another 40 years. Wow. Oh, wow. I think it was 40. No, it was 30. It was 30 because she was 60-something when she took it out after her husband died. And she lived in the house till she was 95 and finally had to go into assisted living. And that enabled her to pay for the maintenance of the house, to pay the property taxes, to pay the insurance. And she had no heirs. So it didn't make any difference to her what happened to the house after she died. Right. I think you've got to consider how important is it to you to stay in the house? How long are you going to stay in the house? How would you use the money otherwise? A reverse mortgage is expensive, and so therefore, if you're going to pay all those extra costs to get the reverse mortgage, you want to make sure that you're going to have it long enough to make it worth the cost and that the benefits it gives you are going to be worth the cost. Exactly. It's a very detailed financial decision. And you want to be working with somebody who can explain all of those facets to you because oftentimes the individual who's trying to provide the reverse mortgage has a bias of trying to provide you with income and they may not be able to or may not expose all of the financial aspects of it that could actually hurt you in the long run. Yeah, you need to understand what you're getting into. You need to understand all of the ins and outs of it. You need to deal with reputable mortgage brokers, and there are a lot who aren't. And you need to have you know, good advisors to let, say that, yes, this fits into your situation. No, this doesn't fit into your situation. Right. I like the fact that you said, is the house important to you? Because I think for a lot of us, automatically we say our, our home is important to us because it's our home. But the financial opportunity of maybe giving up that home and moving to a different home, whether it's a smaller home, a condo or, or something else, you may actually be able to extend the time frame or the amount of money you actually have if you were to sell the home and put the money into something else. So yes, that's true. If you, you, know, you can sell your house for a million dollars and buy one for 300000 
you've suddenly got another $700,000 in play. That's almost a no-brainer. And maybe you didn't need to stay in the million-dollar house. Yeah, it sounds good, doesn't it? Um, (laughs) You know, my father considered whether to get a reverse mortgage, but his house was worth so little that Mm. the cost of the reverse mortgage was an enormous percentage of what he would get. And in the end, he elected to sell the house and move into an independent living facility. Makes sense. Again, Because he lived in the Midwest. He ended up selling his house for $73,000 after living in it for 49 years. Oh, wow. Wow. Yes. <laughs> well, so that opens the opportunity for my next question. It seems like most people, even today, who are LGBT have gravitated towards bigger cities because of safety numbers and they're a little more accepting typically, although smaller communities are becoming more open and accepting as well. Would you recommend that those who are in the more expensive cities and are in a precarious position financially to maybe consider gravitating back towards suburban areas? I think it's something you definitely want to consider. And then there are a lot of things that go into that decision. Some of it is a lifestyle decision. Where is your family? Where are your friends? And if you're still working, where is your work? And those are things that are going to be probably more important to you than the cost of housing. You know, if you're in some place like San Francisco, you're going to have a really hard time living there in retirement. So you may want to look at maybe there's someplace else in California that would work for you where you'd still be close enough to your family. You know, I live in South Florida, so everyone is always discussing, you know, should we move to North Carolina? Should we move to someplace smaller in Florida? Should we move to the next county up? And, you know, some do and some don't. We should create a collective of LGBT people who just pick a place in the center of the country. We all just like <laughs> move there. What do they call that? Like real queer bar they used to do in Denver where like hundreds of gay people just like go to this one bar and just take it over. And they weren't typically straight bars. So it'd be like really queer bar. Gorilla Queer Gorilla City. Queer City. <laughs> and we just all live there. And like, we're all there, so they can't push us away. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, know we, have, we have the city of Wilton Manors, which is a suburb of Fort Lauderdale that's considered a gay city. It's not 100% gay, but it has a large gay population. But I can't afford to buy in Wilton Manors. It got very popular now. Right. Exactly. That's what happens <laughs> when gays. <laughs> right. I can drive to Wilton Manors in 15 minutes, but uh, you know yeah. my housing costs are much cheaper than if I actually live there. Right. Smart. Last question before we wrap up, what tools or resources could you recommend to our audience if they're in their late stage planning retirement phase? Any suggestions? You know, I'm not a millennial, so I'm less tool oriented than millennials are. I think you need to know where you stand. So start with go to the Social Security website, get an account, find out what you're going to get. Look at your, you know, what you have in retirement accounts. Figure out, you know, the rule of thumb is if you can afford to withdraw 4% a year, figure out how much that is. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to make a difference. There are a few people who still get pension benefits. Find out about those. And the other thing for LGBT people is do your estate planning. Absolutely. Um, even if you're married, you need to do your estate planning. You know, my partner died suddenly and we luckily we had done estate planning. It makes a big difference. When you've got that stuff together, go to somebody who understands your situation and say, look, this is where I am. Where should I be? And how do you recommend I get there? Mm-hmm. And you maybe even want to consult with a few people because there's no right way. But as you're making your decisions about when are you going to retire? When are you going to take Social Security? Are you going to relocate? Start out by knowing where you stand financially. 
where you stand financially is going to make a difference in what options you have. Exactly. Absolutely. And if all of this sounds daunting and you would like to work with somebody face-to-face level, look at the SAGE organizations in your area. They may be able to connect you with reputable sources and they oftentimes bring in financial planners and financial professionals to talk to various groups. So take advantage of those resources that are available to you and they can connect you with some reputable people and companies. That was a great conversation. We appreciate your time. Where can our audience find more about you and Living on the Cheap? They can find me at livingonthecheap.com. And you're on social media? I am on social media. We're on Twitter at Cheap Lives. I'm also on Twitter at Teresa Mears, although Teresa Mears doesn't tend to come out much unless she's at a conference. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Living on the Cheap is on Facebook. We're on Pinterest. Are there any more social media? I think we're not on Instagram. And, not uh, <laughs> uh, Miami on the cheap is on Instagram. Gotcha. Uh, nice. So, Teresa, can you just give us a couple of the cities? Because this was new to me a few weeks ago that you have as many cities as you do that are a yeah. part of the living on the cheap. Some of our top cities are Miami on the cheap, Fort Lauderdale on the cheap, Mile High on the cheap in Denver, Charlotte on the cheap, Wichita on the cheap, Chicago on the cheap, Kansas City on the cheap. Palm Beach on the cheap, Orlando on the cheap. We've got some new ones, Phoenix living on the cheap, DFW living on the cheap for Dallas-Fort Worth, Orange County on the cheap in California, Nice. Greater Seattle on the cheap, Portland living on the cheap, Boston living on the cheap. Awesome. So and maybe those a places few more, I would but say it's impossible highlight. to be living on the cheap. <laughs> right. Well, well that's, most of our sites are in major cities, and we, we do focus on sort of honing in on, look, Guys, you can have a good time for a lot less than you think you can. Exactly. Awesome. Right. Well, I think what we need to do is have Teresa back on some time to talk about the business model of what she's doing. Exactly. Like, this sounds daunting to me in my mid-40s. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I didn't get into digital publishing until I was over 50. Wow. Really? There you go. Right. I, I was not part of the digital publishing group at the Miami Herald. I was strictly print. Wow. So, yeah. That's and it. I kind of stumbled into digital publishing after I had left the Herald. Nice. So it's never too late, I think. Exactly. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. And we hope to have you back. Thank you for having me. Thank you. See what we mean when we say that Teresa Mears and her websites, Living on the Cheap, are everywhere? (laughs) She is literally everywhere. Thank you, Teresa, today for joining us. Uh, Your insight was great. And we think it's going to help a lot of our audience figure out how to plan for retirement even if they haven't planned for retirement by their 40s, their 50s, and 60s. If you listen to this podcast and it moves you to start taking action, please remember to go download the late-stage retirement planning checklist that we provide so you don't miss a single step and you maximize every opportunity that's available to you. If you like this or any other queer money, please remember to like, comment on it, and share it from iTunes so that we can reach more LGBT people and help more LGBT people live fabulously, not fabulously broke. Thank you, and join us next week. Okay, we just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. (laughs) (laughs) Would help me if I had a personal chef made all my my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight. (laughs) (laughs) The other end, I like the butts, so... (laughs) From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the Road. 
Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.